This is the Victor Davis Hanson podcast, The Traditionalist. This show is about Victor Davis Hanson, our great friend, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, military historian, author of many best-selling books, including the forthcoming book, The Dying Citizen. Hi, Victor. I'm glad we're doing this, uh, putting this together as we uh, find a formal great home. I know there are many people seeking to host the Victor Davis Hanson podcast and its various new iterations. So let's get rocking and rolling. Today, yeah, we're going to talk that, about... That we're transitioning from the Nat Victor Davis Hanson NRO to the Victor Davis Hanson traditionalist. And I, I think it'll work, Jack, as, Louis, as uh, Humphrey Bogart said in Casablanca to Louis... Remember Captain Renault, I think this could be the start of a beautiful relationship. Well, well, you and I uh, already have a beautiful relationship yes. in a Christian way. In a Christian way, of course. I'm <laughs> I'm Humphrey Bogart, and you're the Vichy Captain Louis. Uh, oh, at least I wasn't the German Colonel who was, yes. who, was who was shot. Yes. Well, Victor, if we can get time in, because we're kind of uh, squeezed in by the Zoom yeah. gods, but uh, here's some topics I hope we can get to quickly. Let's start out talking maybe about. Um, Kevin McCarthy uh, versus Liz Cheney. You have an essay in American Greatness called The Bleak Biden Way, a new column on the peculiar institution of higher education. And from your website, that's victorhanson.com, known as Private Papers, a tremendous website with a lot of original material. Uh, You have a piece there called One Too Many Lies. That's a question mark. Well, Victor, if we put on your political cap there, assess, if you will, maybe quickly, so we can talk more about the other things at greater length, the McCarthy versus Cheney battle. And I'm pretty sure you know Kevin McCarthy a little bit, if only yeah. because you're de facto neighbor of sorts out there. What, what What's your assessment of this uh, battle? Well, I've, I think I've had dinner with uh, Liz Cheney, and I like her. I I know Kevin McCarthy somewhat. He's out here. He's one district away from ours, congressional district. I don't think the issue is even it transcends to be very succinct. It transcends Donald Trump. It transcends every all of the political issues of the day. And there's just one issue. If you're the majority whip of a particular party, your duty is to canvas that party and to find a consensus and then represent that consensus to achieve legislative successes. If you are at odds politically for whatever reason with the majority of your constituents and you are not galvanizing them around a central principle and you've tried that and it hasn't worked, then you're not going to be an effective majority leader. So for me, it's an apolitical analysis. It's just simply that the majority of the Republicans in the House are on board with a MAGA agenda, whether that includes Donald Trump or not. And their main emphasis and interest and focus is on beating Democrats and making that agenda prevail. And I think Liz Cheney is trying to either recalibrate, reboot, change, modify the party, or she wants to ensure Donald Trump, for whatever reason, maybe good, maybe bad, does not consider a candidacy. But that's not what her job is. Her job is to represent and advance the proposals of the vast majority, and she doesn't have that support. She won one vote, but I don't think she'll do it again. So I think that's what Kevin McCarthy, from what I can understand, is trying to to communicate to her. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's thank you for that. Let's delve into some of the pieces you've written. And if you don't mind, let's start off with the peculiar institution of higher education. And not that you wrote about it, but I swear this morning I saw someone tweeting about 
the fact that Cornell, Ivy League Cornell, is offering four-credit course in, in rock climbing, wall climbing. Your piece, the, the most important word of that title is the last word, education. Just very quickly, here's a little snippet from what you wrote. This appears in American Greatness. Uh, but today's universities and colleges bear little, if any, resemblance to post-war education. You talked somewhat before this uh, about, about the virtues of American education in the, in the, in the 40s, 50s. Uh, you write, Victor, even during the tumultuous 1960s, when campuses were plagued by radical protests and periodic violence, there was still institutionalized free speech, an empirical college curriculum mostly survived the chaos of the 1960s, but it is gone now. Victor, what is the peculiar institution of higher education in 2021 in America? Well, it's it's very peculiar, and I want to say in the piece, I want to make clear that I admire the university tradition in the United States in science, in medicine, engineering, math. It's responsible for the type of research that that has allowed America to be preeminent, but even that is threatened. But in the humanities and some of the professional schools, we're in dire trouble. And what was the argument was simply that we have politicized, even in a North Korean fashion, education. And by that, I mean we're spending a lot of money on administration. The ratio now nationwide in public universities averages about one faculty member to one administrator. And the same is true of budget allotments. So we're spending a lot of overhead and the rate of tuition goes higher than the annual rate of inflation. That's resulted in $1.7 trillion in debt. 45 million young people owe student loans, some up to 30, 45,000. Parents owe more than, have borrowed more than 1.7. And what do we get from it? Because that's not very liberal to do that. We got an institution where there's a caste system where we have 30% have tenure track or tenure jobs. They're mandarins. They say they're woke. 94% of them pull left wing and then they exploit a lecture or what they call a contingent faculty who do more of the teaching and get less of the rewards. We have a politicized curriculum that does not stress analytical or inductive or empirical thinking, but therapeutic deductive thinking. And that I mean, here is what we want you to end up thinking, and here's how we're going to force you to end up rather than we're going to give you the tools of analysis. And we don't give a damn whether you end up left wing or right wing. We just want you to look at evidence and empirical. That's gone. And then the other thing is, you know, the universities themselves have these massive $1.6 trillion in aggregate endowments, but mm-hmm. about 20 of them have half of those endowments. And four universities, and you know who they are, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford, account for about 20, a little over 20% of all the endowments. And most of them, even after the tax reform of 2008, are not taxable. So you, the taxpayer out there, are paying for these universities, especially these woke, prestigious universities, to have income that is not taxed to raise their tuition higher than the rate of inflation to use the federal government to subsidize loans, which gives them no incentive to watch costs, to indebt a whole generation that's not buying a home, not having children, not getting married, but delaying maturity and then prolonged adolescence at this campus. By the way, the graduation rate is on average six, not four years, as they're indoctrinated. And so almost every pathology to end this grant, Jack, 
whether it is this new racialism or this open border idea or the whole transgendered idea that you're a transphobe if you believe that biological women should have exclusivity in women's sport. That all, all of that stuff comes out of this institution. And uh, it's getting worse. So we've got to speak out against it. It's a very powerful institution. It's joined professional sports, the media, the corporation, the foundation, Hollywood, entertainment, all in service of a woke agenda. It's kind of frightening. It's kind of aggravating also, Victor, of that 1.2 trillion, uh, roughly whatever figure you just gave, of uh, endowment that a lot of that is conservative money that because of some, you know, happy memory from the homecoming game in 1963, uh, grandpa's given seven and eight figures. That's a, to, you know, Jack, that's an excellent point. If you're moderate or conservative and you've worked your entire life and you've taken care of your family and your heirs and you want to help people get an education, the worst thing you could do is to write a big check to any of these universities without strict accountability and focused targeted funding. And I would, wouldn't even do that because they have a way of, of diverting funds from donor intent. I would give it to Hillsdale College. And I say that as somebody has a vested interest. I teach two weeks a year there. Right. But Hillsdale College, St. Thomas Aquinas, there's very few schools, but they will honor donor intent and they will keep alive classical education. So don't give money to these universities. It's like giving gasoline to an arsonist. Yeah. Uh, thank you for noting a Catholic college there, Victor. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm a Catholic monarchist at heart, you know. <laughs> In your um, excellent website, Private Papers, and I, again, folks, is victorhanson.com, where you write pieces, optimism, and the pessimism pieces called Eeyore, and many other pieces. You have a beautiful one that you write about fragments of memory, about family farm, etc. But anyway, let's talk about the, your optimism piece. One too many lies, question mark. And this is what you write, if I may read this quickly. I think daily, incrementally, insidiously, the number of Americans that does not believe official Ministry of Truth communiques grows larger, and the number promulgating them for careerist purposes shrinks. The white-driven, anti-Asian, hate crime spree, lie is about dead. The data showed the very opposite. Whites were underrepresented as generic hate crime perpetrators, and in particular, were not responsible for the uptick of anti-Asian violence, either proportionately or in absolute numbers. African-Americans were overrepresented both generically and especially in the case of anti-Asian crimes. And Victor, you talk about other things where the Ministry of Truth lies seem to be more and more exposed. I just saw a Rasmussen study about people of as the my Italian forebearers would say, fanabola with uh, the CDC guidelines. People just don't believe the malarkey anymore. So, Victor, have there been one too many lies? Yeah, I think so. Anthony Fauci, of course, is the poster boy with his communiques that you should wear, you should not wear masks, you should wear one layer, two layer, no layers, all layers of masks. Herd immunity is 60, 70, 80, 90, 100%. So, I, I think they've told one too many lies. If you're an Asian American and you're worried about a recent spike in violence, generic violence against people, racially motivated, I don't think when you see a white male, you say that is the more likely in a percentage data scientific 
deeply examined manner to hurt me. I think it's more the data shows, and I think the Asian community, even though a lot of members do not want to admit that, that African-American males are vastly overrepresented as compared to the percentage in the population. Tragically so, I don't want to go into the reasons why. I don't know the reasons why, but they're overrepresented in hate crimes in general as perpetrators versus their population and Asian American targeting in particular. I don't think anybody believes anymore that on January 6th, a Trump supporter bashed in the head and murdered a Capitol officer, Brian Sicknick. I don't believe anymore that any American believes it was an armed insurrection. That is, they caught people with firearms or they used them. I don't think anybody believe that Ashley Babbitt was a existential threat to the lives of people in there, many of whom were in full riot gear with automatic weapons. I think rather they do believe she was shot while unarmed and no one, for whatever reasons, will tell us exactly the circumstances how she died, much less the officer's name, sex, race, all the information that we get instantaneously when anybody else who is unarmed is shot by the police. So that myth, I think, no one believes anymore. I don't think they believe that Donald Trump was told that the Russians were putting bounties on Americans in Afghanistan to kill them, and he didn't care. I think that's that went to the the ash heap of during the D-Day ceremonies. He didn't want to, you know, go to them, or he refused to take off in a storm because he was unpatriotic. All of these things, I think people are, are starting to see that there's no currency, and that's why two things are happening. The media has uh, among its lowest polls in history, about 30% of the people believe it. It's factual. And the, and the issues that it's pushing, an open border, shutdown of energy and the New Green Deal, talks of reparations, blanket amnesties, they don't win public support, nor does packing the court, nor does ending the filibuster, nor does changing the Constitution and uh, abolishing voter ID law. They don't have public support. And that shows that for whatever reasons, and I have confidence the American people are saying, you know what, I'm just not going to listen to this stuff anymore. It's against my gut instinct. And then there's a, finally, Jack, there's a whole lot of people who have retreated to a monastery of their mind. They just say to themselves, you know what? I don't want to get into it. I do not want to explain, but I do not watch national mm-hmm. basketball association events. I do not watch NFL. I do not watch any more major league baseball even. I don't want to see people take the knee for a country that gave them so much, so much wealth, so much notoriety, so much influence, and then they can't even spend two minutes to show some modicum of gratitude. I do not watch the Oscars. I do not watch the Grammys. I do not watch the Tonys. I do not watch the Emmys. I've tuned that out. I've tuned out network news. I will not buy a Coke. I will not go in Delta if I have a choice. I think there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. now are saying, you know what? I'm not going to make a big deal and they're going to walk. And so I don't know where this leads because you don't want two consumer bases in one country, but that's where we're getting that. Rather than argue with all of these woke people, we're just saying, go to it, but count me out. Yeah. I think part of the, it's not a problem with conservatives, is there is that we, we just want to be left alone, or we don't think these various aspects of our life deserve to be politicized. But our enemies, and I do consider them our enemies, do believe every aspect of our life has to be politicized. So what do you do in that situation? You do withdraw. You know, who, who needs the agita? 
talking about withdrawing, maybe we can sneak this in and we'll end with talking about your your big essay for American Greatness, The Bleak Biden Way. But I do just want to give a little note to the piece you've written again for your for VictorHanson.com, Fragments of Memory. And it's a it's a short piece, but it, there's a, a melancholy sweetness in here. And you talk about going around a, a five square mile radius of where you live in the Central Valley. And you you say in this piece that a hundred and so a hundred or so farms were were there when you were growing up, and that they're all gone. And this just one line here: so strange that the land is more productive than ever, but the people who first developed it simply disappeared. Their only traces are the wooden skeletons that have not all been removed yet by larger agribusiness companies. Victor's beautiful piece, kind of depressing. I mean, there's a hundred families. That's a community. And it, it both- is, I, it's very sad. I, I drive around and I say there were the, I can't mention their names because people may be listening in New York or San Francisco or wherever they've gone. But I say that family was there for five generations. The house is there, that family, that family, that family, that they were all a community. They their parents served on the school board, the hospital board, the PTA, Little League coaches. And what happened in that globalization transition, whatever crop they were growing, the commodity price was not very good, but the vertically integrated price was where the profit was. So if you grew 30 pounds a box of plums, you got $4. It sold in New York for 50. The person who had the trucks, the cold storage, the packing, the brokerage made the money. And these people either couldn't or wouldn't do that or didn't know how. And I'm speaking of my own family as well. And so when everything shook out and crashed, the land crashed and people came in and absorbed it. And I don't mean mean anonymous corporations, but the more industrious, if you believe that, or the more adventurous or the more innovative or the more wealthy or the more inherited, blessed, whatever term you use, they were conglomerated. And so where I used to see 200 acres or 100 acres or 40 acres, I see 40 acres that's part of 7,000 acres or 10,000 acres. And I know the people who did this, and they're very capable. My irony was that, and I'm including the 42 acres that's left of our 180 acres that I own, that I don't farm now, I rent out. It looks better, Jack, Mm -hmm. because the corporation is tied into the university. It's scientific. All decisions are made on profit and loss, which they should be in a business. They're not stupid like myself and my family. We would plant, if we had an alleyway, it would look beautiful. We would plant pistachio trees on both sides. If we had six little parcels on a hill, it looked like Napa Valley or Greece or Tuscany. And it was beautiful, but it was not economical. So when that land was sold off, they came in and bulldozed the hill, put it on a GPS grid, it's very economical. So all of these places have computerized irrigation, computerized fertilization, computerized herbicide injection, and it's all mechanized. And they're mostly almonds. And what happened to the, the town? Well, people during the illegal immigration boom the last 30 years when ag jobs died up during mechanization, People who were here from Mexico illegally then either stayed illegally or they had children who were legal or they got green cards, but they were not in agriculture, but they stayed here. And they rented these homes. And then to make money, they rented a trailer or a garage or a barn to people from Mexico. 
So where you saw one family on a quarter acre surrounded by a 40 acre vineyard, you see maybe 30 people living there. And the land is not their own, of course. The house is not their own. They're usually renting it. Few buy it. And uh, it's just very different. I mean, within a quarter mile of my house, we have people with cows, chickens, lambs, goats, all around their home. We have 30, 40 people. It, it looks like what I've seen of rural Mexico. And people, there's no idea of common citizenship. I'm not being at all illiberal here. By that, I mean people don't all speak English and people do not all participate in civic government. And so these other people, I don't, I don't know what happened to them. At some critical point in their life, they said, economically, this is not worth it. The land is worth more. If I sell the land, I don't lose money. And their children said, you know what? The schools are problematic. The crime is problematic. The governance is problematic. I'm leaving and taking what little I inherited. I'm getting out of here. But whatever the particular exegesis is, they're gone. And I don't mean they, white people. I'm talking about mostly Japanese Americans, Armenian Americans, Mexican Americans, some of them fourth generation, Sikh Americans, Portuguese Americans. It was a very racially, ethnically, religiously diverse community. Yeah. They're gone. Deplorabus unum. It was. Yeah, they, it sounds they, like just, yeah. they vanished into the yeah. the air. They're, they're gone. Well, speaking of bleak, Victor, uh, the bleak Biden way is the name of the essay you've written for American Greatness. It's a, as usual, big, detailed, lots of sub sub chapters to it, but the. Um, Subhead for the piece, it's a question. What is the Biden way to surveil, monitor, root outrage, jail, confine, and smear? All impediments to fundamental transformation. Now, Victor, some of the subcategories in this piece are, for example, you, you talk about Joyless Joe. Would you talk about Joyless Joe and, and what that his joylessness says about him as we have just gone through 100 days of President Biden? Joyless Joe is more than just his kind of pale, wane appearance and that raspy voice. And then I'm 67, so I hope I'm not getting to that point. But that is a tendency of people my age and, and above to yell for emphasis or to scream. And so what he does is he gets angry, whether he wants to or not. And then he starts on these rants. And the rants, I think, are familiar now that if you want to have a reasonable ID when you vote, as you do when you get on a plane or cash a check, then you're a Jim Crow racist. If you want to get vaccinated, Donald Trump had no vaccinations until Joe came in because he killed people. He's just He was just a mess. Forget 17 million were vaccinated, a million were being vaccinated a day. Operation Warp Speed, unlike the Europeans, the Chinese, the Russians produced not one, not two, but three viable, safe vaccinations. So what I'm getting at is all the enemies are demonized as greedy and racist, from good old Joe, supposedly the nice guy from Scranton. And then anything that Trump did that is successful, the economy has been assumed to be Biden's unique contribution. He said that just yesterday about the economy. The only reason the economy is booming is because there was a pre COVID foundation of lower taxes, regulation, energy development, 
efforts to have symmetrical trade and pent up demand from a veer and funny money of $6 trillion and the combination of it is creating this temporary boom. I hope it's lasting, but I'm afraid it might not be given the rise in inflation. But Biden's attitude is that, as I said earlier, the Trump plague and the Trump lockdown and the Trump recession and the Trump quarantine were all liberated and massaged and improved by the Biden reopening, the Biden vaccination, the Biden recovery, and now the Biden boom. So there's no gratitude, no magnanimity, even an iota, to show that he inherited some things that were working, a secure border, a paradigm in the Middle East that will be workable if it just left alone, the fundamentals for a strong, robust economy, and the one thing that Trump was wanting, that is excessive debt, that he would find a formula to pay it down given this economy is booming. Instead, he's done just the opposite. He's now going to initiate legislation that will end the boom by higher estate, corporate, personal taxes. He will shut down pipelines, energy development. They just shut down a big steel mill not too far from you, Jack, in Pennsylvania because of environmental concerns. I think that was a one-something billion dollar project, 10,000 jobs. And he's going to do that. And then when things go haywire, it's going to be Trump did it. I don't know how long this is going to last, but it's a joyless idea that when you are a parasite, you enjoy the fruits of somebody's labor, but you don't replenish them through the continued policies that gave you those fruits. And that's what, what he's doing. He's doing it in a very demagogic way. I know that Trump could be crude, uncouth. He could call Fauci names and all that. But this is a little different. Right. What, what do you think about Biden's claim uh, that it's a patriotic duty to wear a mask? Is that just foolishness or do you think there's some degree of warped ideology in that? It's warped ideology when he doesn't quantify what he means. OK, so he's trying to get I, I think he's right to trying to get as many people to be vaccinated as possible who don't have comorbidities and would endanger their health. Some people can't get vaccinated. And they will be protected by not herd immunity, but by blanket immunity, which is, you know, there won't be a virus if we get to where we want. So to achieve that, you have to encourage people to get vaccinated on the science. The science says it's about 94% effective, that is Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson Johnson. But the Israelis now tell us that, and other countries tell us it may be after one shot, 85%. But you don't tell people that, even when you get that shot and you get some side effects with the RNA second shots or even the Johnson, it won't do any good because you can be outside walking. You got to wear a mask. There's no scientific data that I know of that says that after you have two vaccinations, say Pfizer, Moderna, and you're outside by yourself in the open air in the summertime or late spring that you need to wear a mask. And when you tell people that, all it does is discourage people from wanting to be vaccinated. And we're going to have a real problem. It's not vaccination availability. Donald Trump ordered over 600 million doses, and I think Biden's increased that. We have plenty of doses. You can go into Fresno County, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, and get a vaccination now without an appointment. The problem is we're down to that 30 or 40 percent of all different races and creeds and communities that are resisting this because partly they've heard about side effects 
And they say, you know what, I'd be willing to do it if I could just liberate myself. But these guys that with vaccinations still have masks on, Joe mm-hmm. Biden being the best example. So it's an unscientific, and he's fixated on it as if this is a moral arbiter of whether you're a good or bad or patriotic or treasonous American, whether you wear a mask after you've been vaccinated, even if you're outside. All he had to do, Jack, was say, you know what, if you haven't been vaccinated yet and you are inside in close quarters, we would ask you to be very careful, wash your hands, distance a little bit, wear a mask. But if you want to go outside and you probably don't need a mask, but I can guarantee you that if you go outside and you have been vaccinated and you're in a you know, solitary position, you're not next, you know, right next to somebody, then there's no reason to wear one. And I think that would really encourage people to get vaccinated. Victor, I was in the New York City uh, Monday and I had to do some walking uptown and downtown along the lines what you and I did once, but I would say 95% of the people I walked by had masks on outside on a perfectly fine day. But that's New York. No, you're right, Jack. It's I, I was remarking to my wife, Jennifer, I was, we were driving the other day and I said, look, that person has a mask on. That person has a mask. It was three cars in a row. So here we have a person driving alone in a car. Statistics say in California that about 55% have had one shot and they have a mask on. And where, what science are they drawing on? What information do they know that we don't know? And is the idea that you're driving on a freeway in a rural area and the air comes through the air conditioning system and somebody in another car rolled down the window and coughed and that little viral particle got sucked in and now you're going to be sick or you rolled down the window and talked to somebody and a germ landed on the seat. There's no scientific data. And we were told that, you know, I keep hammering that, but Scott Atlas told us that months ago and he was, there was a, concerted effort to destroy his character for saying that but that's what he said wear a mask if you're vulnerable wear a mask if you're in close quarters and you're indoors but there's no need to terrify people by suggesting that you need them especially when you're vaccinated or especially when you're in a car by yourself or especially when you're outside maybe and on my little anecdote of some girl locally here in connecticut in a track meet fainted at the 880 as she was approaching the finish line because of course had to run it in a mask. It was just insane. But that said, and all your wisdom said, where the, the Zoom gods allow us only so much time in this uh, current format for the Victor Davis Hansen podcast, The Traditionalist. Folks, this is going to be put up on victorhansen.com, and hopefully that will spread to other places as formal platforms emerge. So, Victor, I appreciate you asking me to be your Ed McMahon. And we'll be back next week with another and maybe even more of this, The Traditionalist. Yes. And I I have a hunch. I have a deep belief. I have a faith that there's millions of people out there who are quiet, each according to their station. And they're watching what's happening in this country. And they're saying, this cannot go on. It's not sustainable. And I'm going to take a principled position to follow the Constitution, the traditions of customs of this country that is and was a wonderful country. And I will not be, you know, intimidated. I will not be shouted down. But the more that you try to change the country in a way that's contrary to its founding, the more that I'm going to speak out against you. And if you're one of those, then join us each week because I, I think we can make a difference. 
Anson 2024, that's the message. Victor, we'll, we'll speak again next week. Mm-hmm.